Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. This uh, morning here, we are going to uh, begin a a little uh, short series here on uh, the return of Jesus Christ. And um, I guess the uh, uh, title of our little series here is is Ready or Not. Uh, One of the things that um, my daughter and I like to play together is uh, hide and seek. She's not a very good hider, I will tell you that. Um, And she makes a lot of noise when you try to find her, too. And so, no, that's not how we play. But, um, you know, one of the things that we've taught when we're playing that is uh, the fact that, you know, when you hide, somebody else is counting. And uh, when you get there towards the end of the counting, um, you know, five, four, three, two, one, zero, ready or not, here I come. And, um, you know, ever since our our Lord Jesus uh, ascended uh, into heaven, and uh, he was taken up by a cloud after he had spent 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection. Uh, there has been this anticipation of our Lord's return. And he is going to be coming back, ready or not. Um, and he said that he would return. Uh, we find in Acts uh, 1, 9 through 11, gives us the description of the scene And it tells us, and when he had said these things, as they were looking up, as the disciples were looking up, and Jesus was taken up in a cloud, uh, it says that while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These were angels. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And since our Lord's ascension, there has been an expectation of his return. Uh, The apostles believed that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. The early Christians lived and died in expectation of his return for centuries. Uh, The church, uh, for for many years, for for hundreds of years, has uh, been proclaiming the return of Jesus Christ. According to the Pew Research Center, a study was done in 2010 about the return of Jesus Christ and the likelihood of it happening by the year 2050. And 41% of Americans believe that Jesus Christ definitely will have returned by that time. 23% said probably will return by that time. And 18% of Christians uh, said will have returned uh, to earth. However, a 46% plurality of the public does not believe that Christ will return during the next 40 years. That was done in 2010. And so we're going to spend here about five weeks on the second coming of Jesus Christ. And, you know, with a lot of the recent events that uh, have been going on in our world, I mean, these are worldwide things happening, floods, earthquakes, uh, chaos, mass chaos going on in the world. And I'm sure many of you, if you follow any type of uh, news media, whether that be on Facebook or 
things that you're watching, uh, you know there's been a lot of talk, and maybe you've even seen things on Facebook about, you know, our Lord's coming soon, and it's going to happen, and things like that. And, uh, you know, a lot of that kind of things, a lot of that talk can bring a lot of anxiety in people's lives because they're hearing about all this stuff, and uh, they get really anxious about things. And I don't think our Lord wants us to be anxious um, in, in things uh, that are dealing with that, because I think many times people focus more on things like the rise of the Antichrist and, you know, persecution and all those types of things. We have to keep our focus and our eyes on Jesus Christ. That's what we need to be looking for. We shouldn't be looking for the Antichrist. We should be looking for Jesus Christ and in his return. And so I want to focus uh, through these messages. I really want to focus more on Jesus' return, focusing on who Jesus is, uh, what he's going to be doing, uh, more than, you know, the events and how they're going to play out and... um, you know, those types of things. And so as believers in Christ, we should be awaiting his return. We should be faithful by being awake and not asleep. Um, So over the next few weeks, I want to focus our attention on our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to refresh our vision on him, on how God's word describes him. I want us to be in wonder of his power and his authority. I want us to remember his promises, and I want us to anticipate And eagerly await is what uh, the book of Romans talks about, eagerly awaiting the adoption of our bodies as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. And uh, when our faith will literally become sight. And so this morning, this is what I want you to take away with you for today. Remember who Jesus Christ is and anticipate his return. Remember who Jesus Christ is and anticipate his return. So who is he? Well, let's take note here a few things that we find in God's word. Number one, he is the crucified and risen Savior. Turn with me over to the book of John, John chapter number 20. And I want to show you just a few things here uh, revolving around who Jesus Christ is, that he is the crucified Savior and resurrected Savior. In John chapter 20, uh, we find here about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how after he resurrected, he gave many infallible proofs of his resurrection. Uh, We find him appearing uh, there to Mary, first of all. And uh, Mary's there at the tomb there in verse number 11, and she's, she's weeping, she's crying. And uh, Jesus appears to her, and it says that she's supposing that he was the gardener, Um, she says, where have you laid my Lord? And he turns to Mary and he says, Mary. And she recognized that that was her Lord Jesus. Uh, We find the fact that, uh, you know, Jesus tells her and, and says, go and announce to the disciples. And Mary does that in verse number 18. And she says, I've seen the Lord and, uh, and that, uh, he had said these things to her. And in verse number 19, this is really awesome because we find Jesus Christ showing up in a room with the windows shut and the doors locked. Now that's pretty fascinating uh, when you think about that. And so in John chapter number 19, let's read this together. John chapter 20, verse number 19. On the evening of that day, what day? The day that Jesus Christ resurrected. The first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, For fear of the Jews, 
Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. This phrase here um, that we find that Jesus tells them about peace being with them was really a common Jewish greeting, wishing overall well-being on the other person. And what we need to understand is that when we think about who Jesus is, that he's the crucified and risen Savior, our crucified and risen Savior has given us peace. He tells his disciples, peace be with you. Now, why were they so afraid? Well, look at the text again. Look what it says. It says, the doors being locked where the disciples were, for what? For fear of the Jews. They had just crucified Jesus Christ, and they were terribly afraid. Have you ever been afraid like that before in your life? You lock the door. I remember uh, when my wife were uh, married early on, we were probably married for about two years, we were sitting at a stop sign, and I remember there was this guy walking towards us, and he had this look in his eyes, and he kept walking towards our vehicle, and it made me feel very uneasy. So you know what I did? Click. (laughs) Lock those doors, right? And so here's the disciples, they're in the upper room, and it says that they were afraid, afraid of the Jews. And Jesus shows up and he says, peace to them. And so these men were in hiding behind locked doors. Jesus had just been crucified, and it was not far-fetched for them to think that they might be next, that their lives themselves could be in jeopardy. They may have been discussing how they could sneak out of Jerusalem without being seen. But suddenly, with no knock at the door, or no one opening the door, the risen Lord Jesus Christ is in the room. And he says to them, peace be with you. And so while Jesus stood in their midst, while his resurrection body is a physical body, It also has the ability, from what we can see here, the ability to actually pass through locked doors and show up in areas that people might think is totally secluded. You can imagine how startling it would be to have that type of thing happen. Can you imagine? Here's the disciples all huddled together. They might be wringing their hands the doors are locked. Peter, did you check that door? Peter, is it locked? Did you make sure? Did you, did you move the, the, the chair in front of the door also? And then Jesus shows up and he says, peace be unto you. In Luke chapter 24, verse 37, we read that they were frightened and thought that they were seeing a ghost. In John chapter 20, 20, it reports the outcome here for us. Look what it says. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Isn't that interesting that here they are, they're they're afraid, they're terrified. Jesus shows up and with, with a few words, peace be unto you. But immediately then he shows them infallible proof of who he is. And he shows them his hands, and he shows them his side. 
There's an old song that talks about that I will know my Redeemer, I, I shall know him by the prince of the nails in his hand. How are we going to recognize our Lord when he returns? By the prince in his hands and the wound in his side. There's going to be no mistake about who he is. And the Lord says here, peace be unto you. This wasn't just the thing of like, hey, I hope everything goes well with you guys. I hope, I hope you're doing well. I hope everything will be okay. But he was talking here, it means far more than just this nice greeting. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ is our peace. That's what the scriptures teach about us. And so for us, when we talk about the fact that he is the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, he is our peace. Now keep in mind that these are men who had fled in fear in their own lives when Jesus was arrested. Peter had denied our Lord three times. Uh, they all had doubted the initial reports of Jesus' resurrection from what we read in Luke chapter 24, verse number 11. And so it would certainly be very understandable then if Jesus had greeted them, you unbelieving, thick-headed people. I can't believe that you would actually doubt who I am. But how does the Lord greet them? Peace be unto you. Isn't that amazing what our Lord does? That even in the times of our greatest fear, our greatest doubt, our greatest difficulties that we're struggling with, how does our Lord respond with us? Peace. And so whatever is going on in this world, whatever is happening in this world, whatever we're experiencing with everything that is, that is happening, I want you to know that our crucified and risen Savior speaks peace to us. Peace be with you. I can't overemphasize how important of having peace with God is. Having God's peace is foundational for living for Him. You see, you cannot begin to follow Jesus Christ unless you have peace with him. You must first be reconciled to him, as what scripture teaches us. And it's all what has happened through what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you enter into a new relationship with God. Romans 5.1 now says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's a lot of crazy things that are going on in the world right now. A total lack of peace. It seems like there's insanity that has happened. It just seems like all the loonies have been let out of the, the crazy house, right? And they're running around. And a lot of them are in charge. Right? The, the, the insane asylum has been, has been opened up and they're running things. It's crazy. A total lack of peace. But as believers in Christ, we have peace with God, and even though the world is living in insanity, we can have peace. 
The world is looking for peace. Remember, that's even what Jesus said. He said, I'm come to give you peace. Not as the world gives, right? The world has a fake peace. But he says, the peace that I give to you, it's a real peace. It's not a fake peace like the world gives. And so this peace that we have with Christ is not peace with God. It's peace with God through his blood. But he gives us this peace of God through his abiding presence with us. Jesus is with us. He has given us his peace. We need to remember that until Christ returns, we have a task that has been given to all of us, and that is to go and make disciples. That's what he has left us here for. And so as we seek to accomplish this gospel mission that he has given unto us, even though the world is in chaos, we still have a mission. The church is supposed to still be continuing going and making disciples, preaching the good news, preaching Jesus Christ. And I love this because in Matthew 28, 20, he gives the assurance of this. And he says, and lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the age. I am with you always. And so as we proclaim the gospel to this hostile world, the Lord's presence gives us the peace of God which surpasses understanding is what Philippians 4, 7 teaches us. But secondly, our crucified and risen Savior not only gives us peace, but he gives us proof. Proof of what? Proof of his return. Look again at our text here in John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. I love this. So here they are. They're in their room. The doors are locked. Jesus appears to them. A resurrected Christ appears to them. He's not a ghost. He has a physical body. In verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were what? Glad when they saw the Lord. You see, Jesus showed them proof of a resurrection, and that was his resurrected, glorified body. The fact that Jesus not only died, but then resurrected himself makes Jesus the absolute authority on everything and proof of what he said is true, including his return. Notice his body. What did it look like? It had scars and holes. In Revelation, we're reminded of John seeing Jesus Christ, and it talks about Jesus as being a lamb as though it had been slain. Do you realize for all of eternity, we are going to see our Savior Jesus with hands, with holes in his hands, and a hole in his side. And for all of eternity, we are going to stand in amazement and wonder that this is Jesus who died for our sin and resurrected from the grave. And we have peace with him and we have proof that we are with him always. And that's going to be a glorious thing to see our Savior like that. But what are our bodies going to be like? Are they going to have scars and handicaps? No. We are going to have a body, a glorious body, that is going to be perfect. But can you imagine seeing Jesus, the wounds, always for all of eternity? And what a great reminder to see the lamb that had been slain. That we are going to see Jesus, that he is the crucified and risen Savior. 
On that first resurrection Sunday, Jesus showed the disciples his hands and side to convince them of the truth that he was risen bodily. In Luke chapter 24 and 39 and also 41 through 43 really adds that he invited them. I love this, that he invited them to touch him, to feel him, to put, put the finger, put it in there, feel around, touch me, feel me. And then he even tells them, says, hey, I'm hungry. Let's eat some fish. Isn't that amazing? That historical fact should be at the center of not only our witness for Christ, but also our hope in Christ that he is returning. And so the message of the gospel is the fact that Christ died for our sins and he was raised again according to the scriptures as what 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 teaches us. And I urge you, and others in here as well that know Jesus as their Savior, I urge you that if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you need to repent of your sin and you need to turn to Jesus Christ because he is the only, the only crucified and resurrected Savior that can give you peace, true peace, and uh, that he will give you proof of that as well. And so we need to be proclaiming this. We need to be proclaiming the fact that he is the crucified and risen Savior, and he is returning. And the fact that he's been crucified, the fact that he was resurrected is great proof of his return. So here's a Bible truth that I want you to take away with you from all this. Take joy in knowing Christ is returning because the crucified and risen Savior has given us peace and proof to continue to live for him. Even if everything in this world falls apart, we can continue to live for him because we have peace and we know that Jesus Christ is our Savior. Here's the second thing. He is faithful and true. Turn with me over to uh, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 and verses 11 through 13. We get a sneak peek here of a description of our coming king in all of this. John begins by stating that he saw heaven opened. What must that look like? Heaven opening? Think about that. The heaven opens. That must have been a, a, quite an interesting sight. And if you remember back in uh, Revelation chapter number 4, John had, had seen a door uh, and it's standing open in heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ had called to John to come up so that he could be shown what must take place. And through that door, John was ushered in, from what we read here, he was ushered into the very throne room of God. But here in verse number 11, it's not a door that John is looking through. We find here that heaven is open. The heavens itself are opened. The gates had been thrown wide, and standing in the open heavens was a white horse and a rider sitting on him. Let's read this text here, John chapter 19, verses 11 through 13. Look what it says here. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called what? Faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And so here John fixes his eyes on the writer, and John describes for us the glorious revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is about to receive the kingdom that is promised to him by the Father. And Jesus Christ sits upon his white horse as a triumphant conqueror. A white horse really was the traditional horse that was ridden by victorious Roman generals in their triumphal processions through the city of Rome. And this white horse here symbolizes for us the spotless, unblemished, absolutely holy character of the writer. And who is that? Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ here, he's on the horse And it stands in sharp contrast, if we read earlier, stands in sharp contrast to the rider of the white horse who proceeded out of the first seal that Christ broke from the scroll in uh, Revelation 6. That rider had ridden out as a false messiah, offering the world a false peace, and the world fell for his deception and gave him a victor's crown, and he ruled the world You see, this world does not belong to this false Messiah. And the true king now here appears as the true conqueror, the true victor, the one who stands in absolute authority as what John sees him as being the rider on the white horse. And he appears now to take back what is rightfully his. It all belongs to him. In uh, Romans chapter 8, we read about how all of creation is groaning, and it's, it's, it's groaning because it's groaning for its redemption. And here Jesus Christ appears as the faithful and true one to take back what rightfully belongs to him. John tells us that this writer is called faithful and true. You know, there are no other titles the more appropriate for Jesus Christ than that. Faithful and true. He is faithful to keep all of his promises and what he speaks is always true because Jesus is faithful to his word and faithful to his righteous character. It follows that his judgment then is righteous uh, as well. And he judges righteously But John goes on to say that he also wages war righteously. Look what the text says. It says, and in righteousness he judges, and in righteousness he makes war. You see, when he returns, Scripture teaches us that he will judge all of the wicked. All the wicked people will be judged by him. And when he returns, he will judge the ungodly people that are left here on this world, those that never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is pictured here as a warrior king who will wage war against his foes and he will make all of his enemies his footstool. And he will be the executioner of all the ungodly and unbelieving sinners. You see, John continues giving us a description of the returning king. Look at verse number 12. It says, His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Think about his eyes. Nothing will escape his piercing look. These are the same eyes that wept for Lazarus when Lazarus died. These are the same eyes that lifted out, that looked out towards Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem! 
These are the same eyes, and now here it says that his eyes are like a flame of fire. His piercing eyes, nothing is going to escape his gaze whatsoever because he is faithful and he is true. Then he continues with this description of Jesus in verse number 12. John tells us that on the head of Jesus are many diadems. This is different from the most of the other crowns that are mentioned in Revelation. The other crowns mentioned are the crowns of wreaths and of victors. But these diadems are crowns of rulers, of kings, of royalty. They are worn by Jesus to indicate his royal authority, his sovereignty. And the fact that he wears many diadems indicates that he truly is supreme ruler of all. That he truly is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the Jesus that is returning. He rules over all. And he's coming back. He alone is the ruler of the whole earth. You see, this day had been foreseen at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, as what we read in Revelation eleven fifteen. It's a loud voice from heaven. It says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The many diadems that Christ will wear at his triumphant return are a fair exchange indeed for the crown of thorns that he once wore. When he went to the cross and he was crucified and mocked, and now we see him coming back wearing many diadems, the crowns that he will have. There will be no more mocking at this time. We read in Scripture that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what does this mean for you and for me? Well, because we are part of the church, the bride of Christ, we will reign with him. We will celebrate his reign and worship him for all of eternity, first in his millennial kingdom, but then in the wonder and the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. So here's a Bible truth that I'd like you to take away from this. When Jesus returns, he will be faithful in his judgment of the wicked, and we will behold Jesus in all of his glory. I want you to think about that. He will be faithful, righteous judgment in all of the wicked. There's no doubt in here whatsoever that all of us in here have experienced some type of misjudgment, mistreatment, hardships, difficulties where people have treated us badly, things have happened. I want you to know that when Jesus Christ returns, he will set everything right. Everything. Nothing is going to escape him. Everything will be set the way that it needs to be because he will do it righteously. Here's the third thing. He is the bridegroom coming for his church, the bride. In the gospel accounts, Jesus gives us some parables about the bridegroom and a wedding. And these parables are to teach us very important truths about Christ's return and that we need to be prepared for his coming. Because when the bridegroom returns, he's coming to get his bride. In Jewish culture, we find that the way that they did weddings was, was very interesting. And I got some few things here for you to think about. First of all, the way that, that weddings took place was that there was a marriage contract. 
So for example, Tom and Etta, uh, there was a con, if they were Jewish and this was during that time, there would be a contract that would be made and it would basically mean that Tom was going to take care of Etta and he was going to provide for Etta. And the way that all of this would play out was the fact that the bridegroom would pay a dowry or a down payment to the bride of her parents. Now, I want you to think about this. Here is Jesus. He says that he is the bridegroom. What down payment has Jesus made saying that he is going to take care of us, that he is going to keep his end of the bargain and giving us eternal life. What is it? Himself. He was crucified on the cross, and he says, hey, I am going to take care of you. This is the contract that I've entered into. And so we read in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, it reminds us, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So after they would have this contract, basically what then would happen is that the bridegroom would then go and make preparations. He would be off and he would be building a house. He might even be building onto his father's house. Boy, it sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? So there he is. He's building and he's preparing. Remember what Jesus said? He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will what? Come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you will be also. So there he is. He's working hard. He's making preparations. And I love this. Did you know that the father of the bridegroom was the one that told the bridegroom when everything was ready and when he could go get his bride? And does that not follow along with what Jesus said? No man knows the hour, not even who? Jesus doesn't know, but only the father. And so when he was making all the preparations, finally the father says, that's it, son. Everything's ready. Everything's prepared. Go get your bride. And so what would he do? He would leave and he would go get his bride. Now, what was the bride supposed to be doing at this time? She was supposed to be watching and waiting in anticipation for the return of her bridegroom. And that's what we read about because there's these things in Matthew chapter 25, for example, verses 1 through 13, about the parable of the ten virgins. They need to have their lamps lit, ready, ready, waiting for the bridegroom to come back. And so the, the bridegroom would come back, and there he would come, and there, there were supposed to be a procession. It's wedding day. It's a happy, joyous time. And they would go throughout the streets, and they would go to the bridegroom's house, and there they would feast. We read about a long feast, especially in uh, John chapter uh, number 2. Remember the wedding at Cana? Sometimes these feasts would last for days. They ran out of wine. What did Jesus do? He provided the wine, right? All of this goes together with what Jesus Christ is doing. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter number 5, because I love some of these things here that Jesus reminds us, how God's word reminds us of the relationship that he has with the church, the bride. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. 
tells us, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, verse 27 really is the key. He presents the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, that she might be holy without blemish. See, that's what God is doing right now. He's refining his church. He's making us more and more like Jesus Christ in splendor, in glory. And when he returns, we will be presented spotless, holy, unblemished, You know, we have that picture of when there's a marriage, the bride comes down the aisle and she's wearing what kind of gown? White. Why? To represent purity and holiness, that there's no blemish. I mean, what would it look like if a bride came down the the wedding, uh, the aisle there for the wedding and she just was rolling around in the mud outside? Or maybe she decided to stop over to the side of the road and change a tire? I mean, that wouldn't look very good, would it? No. Jesus Christ commands us that we keep unspotted from this world because he wants to present us holy, spotless uh, before Jesus Christ. Then we find, lastly, that there's this marriage supper itself. And during the time of Jesus, this marriage supper, it's illustrated for us here back in Revelation 19. It tells us here, the events described by Jesus, look what he says here, verses 7, uh, Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So there's a great delight and anticipation in Christ returning as the bridegroom for his church for the bride. The Christian one day will find himself in ultimate delight at the time when he consummates all things to himself. And I want you to think about this. When Jesus Christ returns... When we are in his presence, there will be unbroken fellowship now for all of eternity with the bridegroom because we will be in his presence. And so here's the Bible truth that I'd like to take away from that. Be encouraged that when Jesus returns for us, we will be like him and fulfill our purpose of unbroken fellowship with God. And this is something that we need to be looking for Ready or not, Jesus Christ is returning, and he's coming back. We need to remember who he is in his return. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.